Oh boy, this one's exciting. Um, so, welcome back to Unstandardized English. I'm JPD Gerald. Um, for those who don't know, we talk about the epistemology of whiteness and we try to do something about it, uh, particularly as it impacts language teaching, although not always specifically that. However, in this episode, we're talking about language teaching. For those who don't know, who have come to this purely as a podcast and not from my background field, um, I was an ELT or an English language teaching professor. Professional, however you define professional, for nine years before I got my current job that we don't need to talk about, but um, also before I started my doctorate. Now, I am researching the intersection of language, education, racism, and whiteness. Although, truth be told, I have focused my scholarship more on whiteness than language education lately. That may change as I may be writing something larger that ties language education and racism and whiteness together, but we'll see about that. However, for those of you who don't know, I wrote an article that was released this summer, I guess it was technically the end of spring, called Worth the Risk of Decentering White Towards, gotta have that towards, very academic, Towards Decentering Whiteness in English Language Teaching. It's published in the British Columbia Teaching English as an Additional Language Journal. And it was very popular for, you know, journals, because nobody reads journals. Anyway, it's led to a lot of what I've been doing this summer and fall on uh, whiteness, basically, um, both inside and outside of language teaching. But one of the things people always ask me is, well, Justin, what do I do in the classroom when whiteness is decentered? Um, if you are asking me what to do in the classroom, you have missed the point. Although I've written short newsletter articles about what to do in the classroom since then, because, you know, some people do want to know, and that's fine. Um, but people have also asked me, okay, so you decenter whiteness. What is the actual impact? What does the field look like? What does the classroom look like? You succeed, right? What happens? You know, uh, the Joker in the in the Dark Knight talks about being a dog chasing cars, right? Wouldn't know what to do if he actually caught one. So, what if I actually succeed and I help to decenter whiteness in this field? What do we do with that? Well, I brought some special guests back here, Scott Stiller from first season's episode talking about the concept of fluency. You should check that one out. It's one of the more popular episodes from the season. And the Dr. DJ Ramjitan, who has been on a couple of episodes, he first talked about accents, because that's where his research focuses. And then he came back to talk about um, employability um, and, you know, what the ideal employee is in March, right as the pandemic was actually started. So uh, you're going to hear their thoughts, my thoughts, and a whole bunch of asides where I talk about some of my current experiences, because that's what you listen to this podcast for, me to say random shit, right? All right, enjoy. forgot it tells me to record on a computer okay it's recording so yeah uh we are here we're going to talk about what whiteness nope what elt might look like after whiteness you know the article i wrote well i wrote it in january but it came out in may um one of those accidents of history that it came out at a time when people really wanted to listen to what i had to say i wonder <laughs> what would have happened if it actually came out in january um but 
a lot of things people ask me after I wrote the article, they talk to me and say, what do I do in the classroom, Justin? How do I teach this? And I say, first of all, you missed the point because I want you to go do all this other stuff first. And second of all, I don't know because this stuff hasn't happened yet. <laughs> so anything you do in the classroom right now before the other stuff in the industry changes, you can do your best, but you're still working in a field that centers whiteness. Now it's not your fault, but ultimately we need big systemic changes. So I'm talking to some folks who, who, who you've heard before, uh, Scott Stiller and Dr. Vijay Ramjapan, and we are talking a little bit about what whiteness, nope, I said it again, what ELT might look like after whiteness. Uh, Scott has a bunch of ideas about some of the things we're going to possibly change in the field, but for general purposes here, we're gonna talk a little bit about the canon, talk a little bit about teacher training, a little bit about uh, the industry, and a little bit about the classroom. So, uh, Scott, if you wanna explain a little bit about what you're studying and all that, and then you can start telling me a little bit about what you think. Yeah, yeah, well, um, you know, do, I'm working on the, uh, the dissertation right now. Dissertation's looking at uh, the uh, co-naturalization of standardized American English with whiteness and the ideologies, kind of the ideologies that reproduce, uh, uh, reinforce, and uh, also uh, resist the, uh, the kind of undue influence of whiteness within uh, uh, a uh, post-secondary uh, ESL context or post-secondary uh, English education context. And uh, so, yeah, you know, basically, uh, you know, my work is, is about challenging whiteness, challenging whiteness, especially in uh, language, uh, language studies. Because um, I see, you know, I see English language education as a vector of the spread of globalized ideologies of white supremacy. I see it as a, as a, as a starting point of the, the normalization of the white body within uh, you know, many sectors as, as, a, as a symbol of, uh, of power or a symbol of, of wealth or, you know, what have you. And, you know, all of this, all this is, uh, you know, just continuing kind of colonial traditions uh, that um, unfortunately limit and, you know, pose an ex existential threat to people of color, pose an existential threat to uh, people who are outside of the uh, kind of the, the bubble of beneficiary or the, the beneficiaries of, of colonialism. So yeah, just challenging whiteness in uh, language studies, you know, just uh, you know, trying, to, <laughs> trying to say what needs to be said. And, you know, who knows who's listening, right? <laughs> yeah. and, for the and for the folks who cannot see this, which is everyone, uh, Scott, Scott, you are in fact white. Oh, I, yeah, yeah, I'm white, yeah. absolutely. They, yeah, they yeah. don't know, they don't know. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and what's interesting is that I, you know, heard of, of your work before I started doing my work. Um, and, you know, I've always wondered and, mm -hmm. you know, how it is you came into language studies. I don't, I'm not asking you how you came yeah. into language studies, but how you became a person, a white person in language yeah. studies who actually came to yeah. realize that, you know, that epistemology, that ideology was yeah. a problem because it's very easy. Mm. You know, I, I know you've taught overseas and, sure. and I, just like I did. And, it's very easy to just coast on it. Right, right. You just be like, it's fine. Yeah, I'm just going to hang out here in, you know, whatever <laughs> country and I'm not going to yeah, think about it. That's true. Um, yeah. And so my question to you has, has always been, I never actually asked you, yeah. is what made you sort of, I mean, yes, you could say you came in with different ideas, but still, like, what, sure, what sure. made you sort of turn left field on, on whiteness in yeah. language studies? 
Yeah, you know, I mean, that's uh, that's a it's it's a that's a difficult question and an easy question at the same time, because the the easy part of it is is that I've I've been extraordinarily lucky to have um, you know friends like like yourself and BJ and uh, you know, colleagues and uh, you know uh, mentors who were you know just absolutely willing to to call me out on my racism on the racism that is fossilized within me still the racism of my past the racism of you know of, of the uh, of the generations before me that, that you know that make up whiteness so you know being able to to, to, to really have a, a variety of experiences and meet a variety of individuals who were just just willing to to say the truth that was a huge huge factor I mean I mean I, for me 15 living 15 years uh, outside of the United States and experiencing, you know, what it is to be a, a visible, a person who is visibly different from those around. Now, of course, now white supremacy is is globalized, right? So no matter where I went, you know, uh, I noticed that I could get a job and that I was afforded certain uh, privileges and certain advantages no matter where I went. And, you know, it's easy to say, oh, that, well, that's nice. Let's just continue enjoying them. But, you know, my, my gaze kind of turned towards, you know, those who it's affecting negatively. And so, um, you know, from those experiences, uh, I just, uh, you know, I started reading the literature and I had what a, I call like a, a Han Solo moment. You ever, like there's a Star Wars movie, right? Where Han Solo's in the, he's in the Millennium Falcon with, uh, with, uh, uh, with uh, Ray and uh, Finn, if you know what I'm talking about, the, the characters in one of the new Star Wars movies, right? And they're talking about the, the force, right? And Han Solo says to him, he's like, it's true, all of it, right? He's talking about the force, like Jedi's. And I had, that, I had this moment where, you know, I, I began reading like uh, W.E.B. Du Bois and, and uh, you know, Gloria Ladson Billings and, and, I mean, you know, critical race theory, all these things that, you know, the Trump administration is uh, kind of demonizing. And a long time I was reading, I was like, I was like Wait, you know, they're telling the truth here. And a lot of white, and I mean, the vast majority of white people, when, when we hear these truths, we just, you know, number one, we don't believe them. We challenge them. You know, we, we you know, we, we'll do anything. We put up our, as you, as you call it, the altruistic shield, right? We believe that since we're good people, that we believe we're good people, that yeah, that we're we're you know that we're incapable of of of, of hurting or doing, but we are, and we continue to do these things. So, yeah, it's just it, it was just uh, it was it was over time that I I came to witness that man, you know these uh I'm an insider in these processes that have a a limiting effect on a lot of a lot of people and a limiting effect on just you know on, on ourselves as well. So yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's been a long road though. <laughs> well, thanks for the, the origin story. Speaking of origin stories, you know, you know, Vijay, I know that um, you know, your work focuses mostly on like things related to accents um, as people who pay attention to the show know since you've been on here a couple of times. Uh, but I, I always wonder like, since we're doing origin stories, uh, how how you came to focus on that? Aside from the the literal logistics of well, I was doing doctoral research and I found something interesting here, but like how you came to you know because a lot of people from you know cultures where there are a lot of languages spoken that don't necessarily go and study the way that it oppresses people. So how did you you know how did you get to that point? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I think I should start off by saying, like, as someone who hates, like, talking and stuff, it's, it's weird that I focus on speech accents because it's like, <laughs> I don't know, I don't really like to hear myself speak, and I'm going to cringe <laughs> when I hear this later on. 
Um, yeah, but basically, I think uh, my origin story really comes back. Um, well, it was really about me growing up as a child of immigrant parents from Trinidad. And so I guess like for your listeners who, who don't know where Trinidad is, right, it's a small Caribbean island in the Southern Caribbean. And so because of, of course, British colonialism, it's an English speaking uh, nation. And so my parents were born and raised there. And as a result, they, they just speak English as their dominant language. So um, when they immigrated to Canada and had me um, had me here, um, it was kind of, we were both speaking English, right? They were, I was raised with the English language, but they had a different accent from me, right? I had, I was sort of whitened through my voice, having the so-called Canadian accent or, um, yeah, whatever you want to call it. And uh, my parents had this Trinidadian accent. And so from that experience, I really kind of, I was just aware of how, um, just, yeah, how, how we just spoke differently. And it was just weird. Like they would sort of tease me for having um, certain types of white sounding pronunciations of words. So uh, for example, like they would say wata and I would say water or something. And just all of these sort of funny little, you know, teasing um, back and forth about different types of, of how we spoke. Um, that sort of was the beginning of me sort of paying attention to accent. Um, and I think just growing up and, well, I should say that I'm also interested, I was interested in learning languages. So I, I studied French and I studied Italian. And what was interesting about that was being like the only brown guy in these classes in, in elementary school, middle school, high school, and then my, in my undergrad years as well. So um, just from that experience, it was just this sort of surprise of, okay, I'm brown, but I'm speaking with a well, I'm speaking French with a somewhat of a so-called native speaker <laughs> French accent, or I'm speaking Italian with a, um, yeah, and so on. So it's, um, yeah, so I just guess, I guess from those types of experiences, like I kind of was interested how like our race and specifically our racial identities um, sort of interact with how we, how people perceive us in terms of our accents. And so. You know, I didn't really think about that because, um... I spoke, I learned French too. And now I was the only black kid in the class, but that, that wasn't because it was French, it's because it was my school. Um, like it was true in French, but it wasn't just because of the French. Um, but then I realized like I did become very good at French. I mean, whatever, however you define that, I spoke it without hesitation. Um, and when I went there, there, I got a whole lot of like, in retrospect, very paternalizing compliments on my accent. Um, <laughs> can't, I can't really do it anymore. Um, but at the time, I could just, you know, they all said, oh, was your, was your parent from France? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just like, nope, just learned it in school. I mean, and then I went there, but like still. So yeah, it's interesting. Um, so like I sort of said, the, you know, I wrote that article and people are always asking me, so, you know, how do I do this? How do I make this yeah, to classroom with whiteness decenter, but the classroom is like the last aspect of things. That's the bottom of the pyramid. Well, maybe not the bottom, the top. We know what I mean. The, the pyramid metaphor doesn't work, but <laughs> the last stage of things, right? You can't just go in the classroom and change things if everything else doesn't change. To me, one of the things that really needs to change is where we're getting our epistemology from. Like, who who are we studying? 
as language, I mean, language studies, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not even really talking about academia yet. I'm talking just about like language teachers. Um, like I'm not really talking about who's publishing right now. Yeah. You know, our canon is like, it's like Chomsky and Krashen. Right. You know, I remember learning that stuff when I was getting my master's. Um, and, or I, I remember we had Betty Azar, who was a, a grammar person. I still have a Betty Azar book in here somewhere. Um, she lives on an island off the coast of Washington State, I believe. Um, <laughs> and because that's how you get to know authentic language, live by yourself. Um, <laughs> so, you know, when I think about these things, I think that like we can do all this stuff, but if we don't change where we're getting our knowledge from, you're going to end up with the same thing. So I know, Scott, you had some thoughts a little bit about how, you know, what, what the world might, the world of DLT might look like. Yeah after we, we, we've succeeded this, which is, you know, perhaps overly optimistic to think that we will, but we yeah, can't do it if we don't think we're going to succeed. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's easy, to, it's easy to, to view, you know, folks like us who have these kind of conversations as kind of quixotic or as, you know, overly idealistic and, and uh, it's kind of redundant, excuse me. But, you know, it's, uh, but it's important. It's important to us to have, I, I believe, to have an ideal and to look to the future. And, and to, to kind of aim, aim for something, because if we, if we don't have that, then, yeah, we'll kind of be susceptible to, um, to you know, getting, losing our way. But um, so, yeah, my, um, my I, you know, I've thought a lot about this is like, how does this, you know, how does this, uh, this, this, this vision of a post-whiteness ELT kind of come to be? Or what does it look like? And so I have, there's kind of four elements to it that I, that I think. And so uh, the first one is, is a vision of inclusion and not exclusion. And now this, this first one kind of centers whiteness and I do apologize and I am white. So there's pretty much everything I do centers it. So I do want to apologize for that. But, um, but it's important, it is important to convey to white folks that this is uh, not an exclusionary vision, but rather it's a vision of inclusion. So do, you know, white folks often misinterpret inclusionary projects that bolster the representation of people of color as being exclusionary of white people, uh, regardless of how untrue that may be. And it's not about that at all. It's about, this is about inclusion. So first thing is that we have to change how white people come to understand the exclusion and inclusion dynamic. So white people need to come to understand that inclusion does not equate to exclusion of white people, right? Because there, there, I mean, there's gonna be white people, teachers who teach, uh, you know, that they're not gonna like, you know, come in and say, okay, no more white people teaching ELT, right? That, that's, of course, that's not gonna happen, right? But we need to challenge this, this notion because Believe it or not, there's a lot. This is a, a, a fear that a lot of people, like see a lot of white folks, uh, unfortunately, they hold on to this bizarre ideology. And so, you know, um, part of the challenge to this is to, is really to convey the fact that a more uh, diverse program, not just diverse in, uh, in 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 accent or race, but diverse in, in you know in in all in all elements, you know, gender and and and, and every every domain, is this is this is something that can strengthen the program. We have to see this as a strength, as a, as, as it's going to give the students a a, a wider uh, understanding of just the, the the different kinds of human beings who use the language and uh, different ways a language can be spoken, and they're all valid. So that's one thing. Okay. Yeah. No, I want to respond to that. Yeah. I think it's really interesting. Um, I think because this is one of the things that I mentioned in a paper that I didn't even that I never actually submitted for publication, but I like to reference it and nobody can tell me that it's not true because I never <laughs> submitted it for publication. Um, 
<laughs> but <laughs> it's uh, one of the ideas I had is when I was thinking about like these these practices where unqualified white teachers, unqualified teachers period, but unqualified white sure. teachers are, are hired to be in this place or they're given as in, in one of VJ's papers, you know, how they're given more, you know, power within language schools, right? Um, even if they've got less qualifications or less experience. And I do think, and this isn't just English language teaching, but we're talking about that, that when people talk about, we need to bring in more of those people. Um, and some people get afraid. They're afraid because they're worried that they'll be pushed out. But why would you worry you'd be pushed out if you really were the best teacher? Yeah, precisely. <laughs> you know, precisely. I think there is, and, and nobody wants to voice that to themselves, yeah. right? No, yeah, yeah, no yeah, one's yeah. going to say, well, I'm kind of bad at this. <laughs> and the only thing that I have going for me is that I'm white. Um, because there's people of whom that is true. Right. Oh, that's so, I mean, yeah. That's so, like the, the majority of uh, of you know English language teachers, yeah. you know abroad, you know, especially in like the English language industry. Right. So <laughs> I think that exposing that as a thing, you know, if when you're saying, you know, we need to make sure that, that not make sure, but we, we need to convey the message that white people are still going to be included. Of course, mm -hmm. they can and should be included in, in a, in a post-whiteness ELT. They just mm -hmm. can't be centered. And I think that um, one of the problems with whiteness in general is that it can't really exist if it yeah. is not centered. Exactly. Like it exists to be centered. Yeah. So by decentering it, there are people mm -hmm. who will lose part of their identity. Yeah, absolutely. And part of their identity, especially as an English language teacher, is that they are yeah. the center. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And so that's, I mean, that is a very clear example of why decentering is a, you know, it's a very academic word, but it also yeah. makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Because the center is where whiteness needs to be to exist. Yeah. You can't, whiteness can't exist on the margins. It won't be whiteness. Yeah. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Precisely, yeah. yeah. Um, did, you, did you think about like um, if you're in a, a, a you know the schools you've studied, you know the the adult education schools, and have you have do you think this would resonate there? Where where pe you know we're saying we're going to bring in more people who are not white, and people will say no, no, no. Like you you know these ideas make sense there. Yeah, it's it's weird because like Justin, you mentioned a lot like when we're talking about whiteness and racism, we, we also have to talk about capitalism too. Right. And like in yeah. these adult education schools, right, um, the pushback that you might receive is like, oh, well, students don't really want a whole bunch of multicultural <laughs> teachers, for example, to use a euphemism. But um, yeah, I think you, that's why I think it's hard. It, whiteness is kind of still stubborn in, in that sense, right? The capitalistic nature of ELT kind of makes whiteness hard to decenter, right? Is is always trying to come back into the middle. Um, so I think it is. It's hard to. Um, I think it's hard to to kind of talk about whiteness without talking about these other right supporting systems of oppression, um, right? And one of which is is capitalism. Well, one of the things that I think is interesting about that is that it reminds me of what they've often said in like Hollywood movies, that 
these black movies won't play overseas. So we don't need to put as much money behind the black movies because they won't make as much money overseas, right? But then I always said to myself, have you ever tried to market them overseas? Like genuinely tried, not just toss them out on screens and then nobody sees them because they're not promoted as heavily, but genuinely tried to give them the same push that the big tent poles get, right? You haven't tried, so you don't actually know, right? I mean, it's because you, you don't want that to be the case. That's what's happening. And it reminds me of how they're always astounded when there's an exception, right? Like, for example, I don't particularly like these movies, but like the Fast and the Furious movies are very like mixed race. Everybody in the movies, different like, people in China, you know, all the places, and they make all this money in all these places. Mm-hmm. And every time it happens, like these critics are like, I can't believe the movie made so much money. I'm so surprised. How did this happen? And this happens every single time these movies come out. There's another one coming out next year. I was supposed to come out this year, but I got pushed back a year. And like, they're still surprised. Again, I don't particularly like it, but the point is that like, they hadn't tried to put that much money behind it. So when you think about these language schools, right, VJ, they always say, oh, the students don't want that. Maybe they say that. But have you tried to put together a language school where almost all of the teachers were not white? Like, have you tried? Have you tried? There, there's, there's a great example. There, there's a language school in uh, Japan. It's called the Wisdom 21. Um, and it's a, it's a school founded uh, by an African-American gentleman who uh, is, you know, very, very successful in his schools. And he, and he boasts that the majority of his, te- of his teachers are, are not white, and many of his teachers are not uh, English first language, uh, you know. Uh, so, yeah, he's, you know, and, he, and he's always, you know, back in, back in the day when, when I was, uh, you know, active reading about the you know, ELT industry or, the, you know, that sort of thing, he was, he was always an, an example of how it can work. And, um, you know, you always get, of course, you know, in the, in the forums and whatnot, various discussion forums, you know, you'd have white people who would always, you know, make excuses, but yeah, you're exactly right. Yeah, they don't, it, it's because if they genuinely had to try, they might find out that they had no additional qualifications. <laughs> they can't risk, they can't risk that. <laughs> true, so true. Um, Scott, you had a, a, a next point you were going to make. Yeah, yeah, I do. I do. I do apologize. I'm, I'm the. I'm seeing the white guy here, and I, and I hate to. I'm always like, I'm just blathering on. You know, it's. Uh, well, that's you know, why I'm interrupting. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> hey, you're. Uh, you know, sure. you know. <laughs> uh, so the, the next point is uh, it's a, a vision of representation and not white domination. So this idea of just simply encouraging more people of color to partake in, in ELT or to see ELT as a, a viable uh, job, uh, a career uh, opportunity, uh, and to support teachers of color with, uh, you know, some of the more unique challenges that may arise. Some, you know, some of these unique challenges, for example, are dealing with, with student biases, because, you know, students come in with biases. And part of, part of my dissertation work is, is, talking, is talking about student ideologies about uh, you know, white teachers versus teachers of color. And a lot of students, uh, let me tell you, a lot of students have, uh, you know, come in with these enormous uh, biases. Uh, you know, racism obviously is something that is global. Of course, it's different in every place. And, you know, it's, it's always very dynamic. But, um, you know, the, the, the white supremacy element of it is, is kind of undergirding it. And so, yeah, yeah, you know, just really encouraging people of color to say that, that, that they are just as, uh, and oftentimes more uh, um, uh, 
know, proficient as, as, as educators and as English language teachers as any white person is. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's a challenge mm -hmm. is like, I taught for two years in South Korea, which is not yeah. that long, but at the end of the two years, like literally the last thing, I, like these kids knew I was from New York. I told them and they're aware of New York. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then like I was gearing up the last week and I was like, and I'm going back home and where am I from? And oh, they no. said, oh, no. Africa. Yeah. I, I knew that was coming, man. I knew it. Oh my God. And they just like, and they were just being there. They were like, they're yeah. sweet. And, they, mm -hmm. <laughs> and you know, and, and, and the thing is they had, probably had a few English teachers before because I wasn't, they all spoke some English, but like still the percentage, like I was, I was a significant percentage of their English teaching yeah. at that point in their lives. Right. So mm -hmm. I, I, they had had more teachers who were black than I had. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and in yeah. any way they still, yeah. they still thought I was African. Um, wow. But again, like I didn't find them. I mean, there was no hostility there, you know. So, sure, sure. so, but like you have to because what I think of it is that uh, there's a there's a um, article that I've cited before um, talking about moment, moments of disruption about for ESL, ELT teachers. Mm -hmm. um, I guess ELT teachers doesn't make sense. ELT professionals, whatever, um, who are go overseas and they have moments of disruption where the, where the, you know, these things really sink in for them. But then like the one black person who's there is talking about how she experienced a different type of racism in the country she moved to. And there is no support in the field itself for that experience. Yeah. Whether it's anti-blackness or just other forms yeah. of racism. Exactly. You have to find it. Like I found yeah. it, I found my people. But like, you know, you, there, there is, you know, especially because, like when I was in South Korea, at least, um, there were a lot of people from various English-speaking countries um, or English-dominant countries, and their their understanding of race is very different from ours. And I don't just mean they understand it; less it's just different. Yeah. It's like you said. So I would speak to people who were from Ireland, from Scotland. I know Scotland isn't the independent country. You know what I'm saying? But they they, they would tell you they're from Scotland, not the UK. Um, <laughs> um, from England from Australia, South Africa. And let me tell you, everybody there understood race very differently from one another. But they all just understood differently from Americans and Canadians. And not that Canadians understand it the same way as Americans, but you know what I'm saying. Um, and, I, and I, you know, I had some of the strangest encounters with the Western Europeans who were very insistent on the like color evasiveness you know, on the, it's all about class. And like, of course, class is important. Of course, we, you know, we just talked about capitalism. I'm sure we'll talk about it again throughout this, but like you, you couldn't find a community if you weren't a certain type of person, or even if you were not white, you had to be the type of not white to never talk about not being not white, but about not being white. Um, so I don't know. I know, Vijay, if you experience, I mean, I'm not in traveling, but just in terms of some of your, your research on these things. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I want to go back to uh, Scott's point about just like making ELT a viable profession. I think yeah. that's an important point because a lot of the times like ELT is like the lowest, perceived as the lowest of the lowest types of teaching, right? So you have like your K-12 
teachers, and then when they hear you're an, an EL, ESL teacher, for example, they're going to say, oh, well, I used to do that when I was in my, yeah, whatever, my teens or my early 20s. Um, so they, I think a lot of it, a lot of times we, we perceive ELT as this sort of sort of temporary job that you do like if you're working as a, at, at a, as a fast food worker or at, um, at a retail store or whatever. Um, so I think that a part of the problem not of addressing this, this problem of whiteness or, or, or trying to uh, decenter whiteness is because we think of this uh, ELT as a sort of temporary thing that we can just get through, like we just do a job and then we move on. There's no sort of, um, there's no motivation right, to, to sort of try to change it because we just perceive it as a sort of, once again, like this temporary job that, uh, that some of us do, right? If we are on our path to become maybe a K-12 teacher or a professor or something. Yeah, um, that's, I mean, that's a big, I don't know how, to, I mean, I mean, we can talk about it, we're talking about it, but like that, I mean, aside from, you know, it's a, to me, it's a chicken or the egg thing. Like, cause I'm always wondering like, I understand that the pay is low and the conditions are bad, generally. Not entirely, but generally. Um, and therefore, it's seen very lowly. But is it seen lowly because the conditions are bad? Or are the conditions bad because it's seen lowly? You know what I'm saying? Because if it's seen as a low level, and like, therefore, if you're doing it, it's a sacrifice. That's how the altruism thing comes up, right? Um, then they don't have to treat you better. <laughs> you know, you're, you're, you're doing this out of the goodness of your heart. I, you know, when I used to run that program here in Manhattan, um, we had volunteers doing not all, but a lot of the classes, right? What do you expect out of volunteers? I mean, some of them were good, but that was just chance. Like we got lucky. Um, I had, and what am I gonna do, right? If they quit, I don't have anybody. So I have to support them, but I can't really come down too hard on them for doing something bad. Like they're not being overtly racist. Oh, I, I don't like to use overtly, proudly racist. Um, so that's okay. But they're doing things that like, if, if I took a moment and took a step back, I was just like, this doesn't make any sense. And it's not helping them. Like I had one teacher, nice lady. This is what they, they pretty much were all very nice ladies. Um, and she was, she couldn't get them to understand what she was saying because they didn't really speak English. It's just what happens in a class where they're learning English. Um, and then at first she was trying not to have them translate. She wasn't stopping them, but she wasn't asking them to translate. And then she would say something and then she'd say, now say it in your language, in your language. And I'm just like, but they don't understand the phrase in your language. So how are they going to say it in their language? And if they under, if they don't understand the phrase, then how are they going to translate it? <laughs> um, but this is so much of like English teaching in, in cities and a lot of places, you know, and these are the people who need it the most. And I don't mean that they have a deficit. I just mean in the sense that these are people, this is a quick, free class. So they really, they, they, they want the help. Um, and the people in the free classes, like, on the other hand, just logistically, I get that these classes aren't going to have the highly paid teachers because if the class is free. <laughs> where's the money coming from? Um, <laughs> but uh, um, I don't know. I just think it's it's just the way that the system is constructed is really 
it, it just sort of kneecaps everybody before things even get started. Exactly. Um, and because I way back in 2010 when I first came back to New York and I was starting my master's, I like I met somebody who said that they were an ESL teacher, and and she said, "Yeah, but I gotta get a real job soon, you know." Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was not the only time people said that to me. Uh, it's very, very common. I think some of the more heartbreak, heartbreaking uh, stories are, you know, of, of people who, who dedicated a lot of their life to, uh, you know, helping and, and, you know, trying to, to, you know, do this, this work and especially minoritized teachers, teachers who are working within their communities, you know, and just not getting, not getting the respect that they deserve for the amount of help that they're actually doing. So, yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a real, that's a, area we need to work on a lot for sure yeah i really see that contrast between like minoritized racialized uh mm-hmm. teachers who work within their communities or with similar communities to their own community um and it's just what they do mm-hmm. and they're not expecting anything i mean yeah a salary but like they're not expecting anything for it um whereas the whole thing i talk about is the people who parachute in and they're just like i have saved the brown kids <laughs> So you should celebrate me. Um, and you see a lot of them and, and it's a problem. So. <laughs> Absolutely. But like one of the things with whiteness, and, I, and I'll get back to your, your last two points, Scott, um, is that like with Vijay, like how do, how do we decenter it in accents though? You know, because, you know, what, I know whiteness and accents are very closely tied together, but they're not the same thing. Mm-hmm. You know, um, because a a black person from the exact same location could have a very similar accent to a white person. So, and and other races too. I'm just saying. Um, and so, it is not always like I don't like. It's not always going to be that the accent is entirely like a racial binary. You know. So how how do we make sure that we're decentering whiteness with regard to accents, even though we have pushed accents and race together, but they're not actually the same thing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, yes, I I recently gave a, a presentation on something I'm trying to develop, like an anti-racist pronunciation pedagogy. And so a major part of that presentation was basically when we talk about accents, we 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 focus on it, we tend to perceive it as just this sort of um, speaking issue, right? Something to do with our speech, right? I'm, when I'm talking about speech accents, I'm not, well, I know with like sign language accents, for example, right? Accents are not just verbal, right? They can be manual and visual as well. But in my context, I'm just focusing on speech accents. And I think um, when we think of accent only in terms of speech, we forget that we also have to listen to accents as well. And I think um, this, Thinking of accent in terms of listening also provides an opportunity for us to sort of maybe decenter whiteness in a, in a little in 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 some way. Um, so yeah, like you mentioned, Justin, like um, when we talk about accent and whiteness, right? Like your 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 racial embodiment doesn't determine how you speak, right? Um, you can right you can I could be a brown person and and speak a so-called Canadian accent or. Uh, someone with um, a white person can speak with a um, Trinidadian accent, for example. Uh, I heard is, that when I went there, and that was interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so obviously, yeah, racial embodiment doesn't determine your accent, but 
of course, like if you think about like the, the, the theorization of race and linguistic ideologies by Nelson Flores and Jonathan Rosa, right, it's not, it's not really the accent that's, that's um, the problem, it's really how we're perceiving the person behind the accent. And so I think, so going back to my presentation, I think one way that we have to do is thinking about um, not really improve, when we talk about pr improving pronunciation or changing our accents, it's really about changing our, our listening ears, right? So our listening ears are, are conditioned by these ideologies of white supremacy. And so we need to really think about, okay, well, how are we perceiving people in the first place? Right, um, right. The accent comes with a body that's sort of racialized, materialized through these sort of colonial histories and all of these uh, socio-historical processes. So I think we have to really think about, um, like, really thinking about changing pronunciation, teaching, and really focusing just on on listening, like making that the primary goal of of, of pronunciation. I know I'm not making sense. No, but no. One <laughs> but, of the things I, I've always been interested in and I don't know if it's possible, is like, I want to create a class for the white listener. Mm -hmm. You know, as, as Flores and Rosa talk about. Like, yeah. I want to create a, I mean, I'm sure it exists to some extent, but like a class for someone who is unfamiliar with accents other than their own, mm -hmm. um, or other than their own and people that live near them. And you know, want to be able to understand almost anybody when they speak English. Because that's really what it should be. Because we're trying to make it so, in pronunciation classes, what we're saying to people, we're trying to get them closer to whiteness in the sense that we're trying to get them to so that all white people understand them. Mm -hmm. Right? We're, we're trying to get them to be understood by a white audience, mm -hmm. um, generally. Not, in, not all the time, but you know what I'm saying. Um, and I think we need to turn it around and make classes for the, the white person who just hasn't heard anybody else's English and wants to be able to understand anybody. Because, you know, my wife sometimes says to me, Justin, you know, you're, you're good at understanding people's, uh, you know, accents. I'm like, I guess so. I mean, I do, I didn't like sit down and study, I mean, like for the research, yes, but I didn't like go into a room with like a Korean accent and a Chinese accent, but I can tell this is this, 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 you know, it wasn't like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but like, I realized that a lot of it is is, is empathy, and I don't. It just seems so ineffable, but like in the sense that if you can get over that hurdle of this person sounds different from me, and pronounces phonemes in a way that I don't. They even probably understand what they're saying unless they're literally using the wrong word. And I know what wrong, but like literally they're using a word that does not mean what they intend for it to be. Right? Mm -hmm. I think in that sense it is important to tell people what certain like when I teach people like if they're literally using a word that means something completely different, then I'm like, you should use this word. Um, because in that sense, I don't know that you could expect someone to understand what they mean if they use like a completely different word. But those situations, once you get out of a beginner class, are not that common, I think. Um, and like, you know, I had a student who kept calling Chipotle cheap day. I was like, all right, well, we, we, I will help you with this. Um, just because she, she couldn't get, she like, she couldn't communicate at Chipotle. I was like, all right, okay. Um, but on the other hand, I wonder, like, I want to create that class. Who's going to take that class beside people like us who are already doing it? Like, we don't need that class. I mean, we could always work on it, but we don't need a class specifically for people like that. 
So like who who is the audience for the for the people who haven't heard other accents but are interested and want to sit down and listen? Yeah, I think a lot of the oh, I'm sorry, please continue. Oh no no no, go ahead. <laughs> no, you're the expert on this. Oh no, I'm just thinking like even like the importance of listening too, because when we talk about like connecting accent and whiteness once again, right? We have to think about whiteness as as embedded in our institutions and structures. So I think a lot of time with accent as a type of like as a site of workplace training, for example, we we blame like the person who's trying to find a job, right? We blame their accent instead of blaming um, these sort of institutions and structures that are actually causing them to um, causing them to not find the job, right? Or or not experience, you know, some sort of social and and you know material success in their lives. So even like I know both of you would know from Twitter that I always critique accent reduction services because this is one site that's guilty of sort of uh, perpetuating um, white supremacy, right? So it's yeah. saying, okay, well, if you're not, if you're not sort of being successful in the, in the workplace, in, in, in school, et cetera, right, it's because of your deficient accent rather than sort of all of these sort of institutionalized perceptions that are really disadvantaging you. So uh, when we talk about like training listeners, right, we have to remember that these listeners are stakeholders, like these are people that are going to be judging like our students, for example, right, when they go into the workplace. So I think we need to really make pronunciation teaching, for example, something that's embedded within like workplace training and stuff like that. I think it has to be beyond the ESL classroom, it has to be like, um, yeah, widespread um, in that regard. Yeah, sorry, Scott, for yeah, interrupting. But. Oh, you, you, you said exactly what I was gonna say, but better. <laughs> I doubt um, it. But. I, uh, I had an interesting experience this summer um, related to accents. Um, so you, you all know online, you know Rob Drummond? Yeah, sure, um, sure. yeah. so he tagged me right because my article had just come out. People kept tagging me because they're like, actually, Justin Joe, I'm like, what? Well, hmm, huh, huh? <laughs> uh, and anyway, he tagged me in a conversation he was having with somebody else. And the conversation he was having is with this, this, this British YouTuber mm-hmm. um, who does like English classes. Um, and that's fine because I, I, as much as we want to change the official thing, like, you know, podcasts and YouTube, like these things are very useful, especially for if you, if you don't have time to go to actual class, like this is useful stuff. These things need to be part of the discussion. And I think it's important on a podcast to talk about that. Um, so anyway, he had commented negatively, like, like, a, like a critical comment on one of this woman's videos about it was like an accent comparison and he thought it was a little bit more stigmatizing than it could have been and then he pointed out using my article as an example of like you know why this might end up a certain way here's the thing she listened (laughs) like like to her credit she listened um and like she jumped on the zoom with both me and him and we talked through a lot of this stuff and then she took like some time off this summer for like some personal stuff and also because she wanted to like reframe her channel. Um, I'm, not, I'm not giving myself credit for this entire massive channel that she has. Uh, but like, you know, it used to say like beautiful British English on the channel, right? And like, it's also like what she looks like, <laughs> but, but she, you know, but she, you know, she's got a brand, whatever. Uh, but I'm not trying to criticize her. I'm, I'm giving her credit because she listened and I don't remember what it says now, it changed. Um, and like, it is entirely possible, like there's, 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 if someone like that 
can take it to heart and listen and say, you know, I really need to reframe this, even though like her finances are tied to this, right? Um, and realize that I don't know what her finances are in the sense, but like she's doing fine, <laughs> like, at least as far as the, the channel is concerned now. And like understand that this whole like, well, if I do things differently, all the money will go away. It's like, but if you're good at it, now what does that mean? But still, but if you're good at it, you'll be fine. And that insecurity, which I understand, nobody thinks that they're amazing at everything, but I, I think a lot of it is tied to not believing that if, you, if the, the supremacy didn't remain in place, then you would not be at the top. And I think that's true of a lot of accent stuff. Um, Scott, you had a third point so that we can yeah, 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 have think, all your points. Yeah, yeah, I think that, that's an excellent example, by the way. Uh, so you know, the third point was uh, talking about uh, a vision of empowerment and not submission to power normative ways of being. So one example is like a classroom where monolingual principles are confronted and rejected uh, and the students are allowed to use the, you know, the entirety of their translingual resources to aid in the learning process. So just this, this notion that students, that, that, that the diversity within uh, the language learning space strengthens the language learning process. It's a vision of empowerment. And that, that's the opposite of oftentimes what happens is that we, we try and, and, and you know, reinforce this submission to this white normative uh, way, a discourse style or, or way of, you know, way of speaking, even a white normative way of being, right? When we talk, you know, just, just reinforcing, uh, you know, cultural norms or, you know, what have you. One problem that I think occurs with that is that if a teacher is going to encourage translanguaging and that sort of thing, and I don't even, they don't, I'm not even necessarily talking about they have to be as much of an academic to really deeply understand the theories of it. You don't have to deeply understand the research on translanguaging to encourage it. You can just encourage it, even if you don't know what to call it um, or not shame it, right? Is that, and you talk about empowering, by its very nature, you are giving up the power of controlling the language. <laughs> yes. Yes. You have to give up the control because yeah. most likely, even if you're bilingual, trilingual, whatever, you're not going to know all of the ling linguistic tricks that all of your students have, especially if you're like, I live in Queens. There's so many languages here. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Or in Toronto, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, you are not going to understand everything your students say. And that can be scary. <laughs> <laughs> If, if you're the wrong kind of person, but you know what I'm sure, saying? Like no, that, that is, I think, a big reason why. Part of the reason I think that we have these English-only things is so that we can't have them talking about stuff that we don't understand. It is a lot of this power, right? So much power dominance. Yeah. You come, white people are so used to being in power-dominant positions that when we're asked to cede that power, we mistake it for oppression, right? That's what this whole baloney BS notion. I don't. You don't. You don't allow swearing on your show. Actually, that's not true anymore. I started cursing oh, a while. Oh, oh, no shit. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> but you know, white people, we we, we tend to do that, right? I mean, I, I you know, I've been through all those phases as a white person. You know, where where I mis I mistook equality for uh, you know for negative things when, when in fact because that's just how we're, we're taught to view the world, and we need to yeah, so to to fix things, we need to uh, challenge that. 
a big part of my issue then, and this is bigger than ELT, is like, okay, you make, let's say you start a school or your principal, whatever, at, or, you know, you direct it, and you make that the policy that translanguaging or translingual practices are going to be valued, supported, you know, headlined, whatever you want to call it. Sure. Um, and you get some teachers, you know, the teachers, a lot of the time, they're just going to go along with it, even if they don't fight, even if they don't like it, they just go along with it because they're being told what to do, which is why it's important for the policy to be in place. But the problem, I think, is that if they still have these ways of knowing that they were raised in, right? These things are being grafted onto them. They haven't taken my class that people can take if they want to go to the website, um, but <laughs> they haven't gone and studied this stuff, right? So they're coming into translingual practices from the back end, from the backside, mm -hmm. and they're going along with it. They're not actively resisting it, but internally they're uncomfortable because they have been raised and taught in this way. That's why I think a lot about teacher training. Like if I tell, if I create a policy in a school to do this and the teachers go along with it, but they haven't been trained to do this from the teacher training, it's going to be in conflict. You know, that doesn't mean they'll fail, but they're not going to be as good at it as they can be. And I think sometimes I despair that if the training hasn't been good enough, and they're never going to get there, and it makes me sad. But I don't know what you think. Like, DJ, when you think about these language schools, let's say a policy was in place that does this, right? That translanguaging is going to be the, the law of the land, right? Not mandated, but, you know, not banned, not shamed. And, you know, when you think about some of the schools you've researched, some of those teachers, I'm sure, would have been really happy about it, but some of them even if they didn't actively fight it, because I do think most teachers don't actively fight policies, which is a problem when the policies are bad, but it's also, but like when the policies, that's why the policies are important. But, you know, do you think that there would have been some sort of internal conflict in these teachers, even if they had gone along with it, if this policy were in place? We're now deep in a hypothetical, but I think you can handle it. <laughs> well, it's, it's, even from like my past experience too, like sometimes like the biggest opposition is coming from the students themselves. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the times I have a lot of stories where students were like, I didn't monitor, like maybe a group of my Mandarin speakers were speaking Mandarin and like my Spanish speakers were, I had one Spanish speaker in the class and they'd be, oh, all, this, all of my peers are talking in Mandarin and you're not doing anything. You're making, you're making me excluded. Um, you're, you're sort of helping me being excluded in the classroom. So I think all the times the students are coming in with their own conceptions, like, oh, I'm paying money to learn English, so why am I, why aren't I like being exposed to um, English all the time? So um, I think, yeah, I think it's, the problem is also, <laughs> yeah, like how the schools once again are marketing themselves to students and what they think they're supposed to get in their education. Um, in terms of like even my own experience, like I, I always I liked be learning about students' other languages, right? Their their L1s. Um, like I feel like teachers also have to remember that they can be learners too. Like I don't think just because you're you're supposed to teach them English, you can't learn at the same time and let them sort of teach you <laughs> different things. Um, yeah, so I think. Yes. Once again, yeah, going back to like this, this commodified language teaching, there's a lot of this, these barriers, right? These sort of capitalistic barriers that we have to kind of deal with. Yeah, I don't, I, I just, I remember, I don't want to talk 
too much about how good of a teacher I was, but I was a good teacher. And I remember one of the schools I worked in, um, I tried to do things differently. Like we had a prescribed, you know, get them through the book situation. But I said, well, as long as I get them through the book, I can do what I, was, what I want otherwise. And that was technically true. So I would try to spice it up. I would be like, here, let's do these three exercises. All right, so on the things we need to do, <laughs> you know, and I would do, like, I, I, we worked on some music to work on prosody, as we talked about, Scott. Um, I, we worked on poetry, you know, to understand, like, the rhythm of things, because I think that a lot of the time, people are reacting to rhythm more than they're reacting to actual sounds. Um, and it's hard to get people to understand that. Now, I still should have framed it as people won't understand your rhythm because they're, they're not doing a good job, not there's something wrong with the rhythm of your speech. So I still hadn't come to the point, like I was, I was almost there, but I hadn't gotten there yet. But what I had was, because I was doing this like poetry and music stuff, I had students who were just not, they were not into it. You know, they were just like, why are you doing this? Not that they didn't like the song. They liked Stevie Wonder, they liked the song. Um, but they, they just didn't understand why we were doing that. And then they, 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 they went and complained to the school. They said, we're not learning. And I'm just like, ah, because I, I wasn't going to test them on the song. Like they had tests in the book. Yeah, they did, you know, they did well or they didn't do well in the book. I didn't really care. Um, but I didn't test them on the song. And the fact and that's a big part of the test, and the, you know, is that like, if it's not going to be on the test, why should I even do it? I got around that in Korea because they had that feeling. My class didn't have money tests. They had to take these big school midterms and finals. And then when they found out that my class was not on those tests, then it was hard to keep them in, you know, keep it together. <laughs> I had 40 kids in the class. Um, but I gradually came up with a group project they all had to work on. And then they got really into that. Now they, they turned that into a competition, but like, you know, <laughs> uh, I think that that's a big part of the problem is like you're saying, how do we get them to not only have new ways of knowing, but not to reject a new way of knowing and while at the same time, not assuming that the way we do things is going to be better. You know, I mean, we think it'll be better. If we've done the research, but like, we're not going to go down and be like, here, please read this dissertation on the reasons why the evidence suggests that you should do this. Um, so, yeah. Uh, Scott, you had a, a fourth point? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was just taking notes on what you said. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, so the, the, la the last point uh, is, uh, is a, a vision of, uh, of consciousness raising and not reinforcement of a status quo. So th this notion that, that, that uh, racism and biases of all, of all sorts, that they thrive in environments where they're not challenged. You know, my, my transformation to, you know, to, to opposing racism, to, you know, to, to an anti-racist identity, if you will, occurred because I was challenged, right? I didn't grow up in some magical place where I just had this, you know, you know where, where I am right now is, is, is representative of, you know, lots of, lots of work. And so, you know, having, you know, when we're teaching both students and teachers, uh, uh, to, to challenge biases that are embedded within the status quo of, you know, normative uh, social structures. Uh, what, we, what we do is we can help ensure that in, in a post-whiteness, uh, you know, uh, era, ensure that regression 
regression to white supremacy does not occur. Because I think that's one thing we always, we always kind of forget is that regression, retrogression even, is a possibility. And, and that, you know, that, that we can make progress, but at the same time, you know, if we're not careful, regression can occur. And, you know, I mean, as, as, as we can see that in, in today's politics, I mean, things, things have always been bad, right? But um, you, you look at some of the, the rhetoric that, that's occurring, you know, we're, we're, we're looking at, uh, you know, a, a situation where regression is being uh, put up against progress. And so we've always got to remain vigilant. Yeah, I think about that sometimes because I always wonder what determines whether a person, I think anybody can be given information. And some people accept it, some people reject it. But with some people, the people who fully reject it outright, you know, we worry about them later. But among the people who initially accept it, then you're going to have people who keep going and people, it's, it's iterative, the path right you know and 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 sometimes i understand why people don't always make progress because like obviously i've not obviously because you know candace owens out there but for me it seems obvious that you know, <laughs> i've always opposed racism and so forth right it's easy to oppose racism so i've for me like it's easy for me not to be like yeah racism is good like i mean obviously <laughs> but like you know to really study it and really understand the origins of whiteness and origins of race and racism you know that took some time but for me, it was harder to really get my head around how bad capitalism was yeah. because I, I didn't grow up poor, didn't grow up working class. I didn't grow up rich, rich like that. I didn't have a house, Hampton's house, but like I was comfortable. I had vacations and I went to exclusive schools. And so I hadn't, I didn't have to personally struggle financially until I was an adult and I made some dumb decisions. And those things were my fault. Um, <laughs> but I hadn't, I didn't connect this all to a bigger system. And when, when I was challenged on my class issues, you know, on classism, and I wasn't like going out there making comments about border people, mm -hmm. but I still had to examine these things. And that's a big part of it. It's like, oh, I'm not saying bad stuff, so leave me alone. Um, and I really had to unpack these things. And I made progress over time. I changed my language and so forth. And then I had encounters with white leftists who were class reductionists. And then I was less inclined to spend my time talking about the problems in capitalism because I didn't want to sound like them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so what I had to do was stop talking to them. Um, and then I finally was able to get my head around. Like I, I kind of knew the stuff, but I, I was not comfortable speaking out about it because I was like, these people <laughs> need, yeah. need to leave me alone. And I'm wondering sometimes is that there are people who, I wonder if some people have come across the wrong messenger. Yeah. And I'm yeah. not blaming, you know, that. It's not an excuse for being racist. Yeah. Uh, but I do wonder if some people have had the wrong messenger. Yeah. And we also, I mean, not to interrupt, we also have to include patriarchy because, you know, yeah. right now it's uh, three, three, three men talking about this and yeah. you know, white supremacist, capitalist patriarchy, kind of the bell hooks, you know, she laid it out pretty clearly and she's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, that's a thing. Um, and it's, it's interesting talking about ELT and education in general, because it's like, these are still patriarchal systems that are mostly populated by women, yeah. you know, the teaching profession, and especially English language teaching profession. So you have this weird thing where 
um, this is still a system that favors a very small number. Like somehow this is a system where all, almost all the teachers are women, almost all the educators are almost all, you know, but the canon is still some guys, yeah. you know. Um, part of the reason I actually had you two men on here is because almost everybody else I've talked to this season is women. So I was actually <laughs> trying to balance it a little bit, but <laughs> that's not, I mean, not only it's a bad thing. It's just like, it, it's just been, Justin interviews a series of women for several months, um, <laughs> which is fine. But uh, so it's interesting that for now, it, I tried to balance it a little bit. Um, but yeah, that's, and I don't know, we can't do much about the identities that we actually have. Um, one of the, like ELT is, you know, most of my students when I taught in, uh, in Manhattan were women, um, and a lot of them were trailing spouses, they call them, right? Their husbands came here to go to business school or to get a corporate job or something, and then they couldn't work because their visa was not a work visa. They had careers where they lived, usually Japan and China. Um, but they literally couldn't work, but they couldn't legally, which, you know, that's a whole system issue, but the point is they couldn't. So they like came to English class because they had nothing to do, um, which made them very eager students because they had nothing to do. Um, and, you know, thinking about the dynamics at play in the classroom where I was teaching like a whole bunch of women who not only were female, but were people whose careers were forcibly snapped in half um, because of their, because of the immigration laws and so forth um, was really something that was interesting. They're all very nice to me and I like teaching them, but I thought about how, you know, it still felt very like top down. Here's the man saying certain things. Um, and I, it's something that I, I think about. I don't always know what to say about it. <laughs> I think it's also like the whole, like doing this type of work is also always like learning, unlearning, relearning, right? So I think it's dangerous to say, okay, well, I know everything there is about anti-racism, for example. I know everything about patriarchy and sexism. I know everything about, you know, capitalism and, and, and classism, for example. So I think it's, um, yeah, there's always, you always have to remind yourself that there <laughs> You never know every, you don't, like, there's no end. The learning never ends, right? And the unlearning and the relearning, it's ongoing. Yeah, and, and, and the hard thing, I, I try to be careful for a couple of reasons. Let me see if I get myself in trouble, but it's true, is that the people who have given me the most trouble in this field have been white women of a certain age. Um, and what was the name, Karen? Yeah, I know, right? I think one of them actually was. But um, and on the other hand, now that I'm sort of turned the corner to where I don't care anymore, it has been other white women of a certain age who have been very supportive. It's 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 been weird. Uh, like uh, as I'm sort of. And, and, and of course, that's not just ELT, because my articles aren't just about ELT. I've got stuff that's more about whiteness. But since this summer, especially, since I've turned the corner towards really just saying what I really wanted to be saying, I get, I get like, like fairly senior scholars who have been really supportive. And they've, in education, a lot of them are white women. 
Um, but in the time that I was like battling through the issues in this field, like when I was running that program with the volunteers, I had this one volunteer who was very stubborn and I said, here's what we're going to do in the class. If you, you know, just try this, see if it works. It's fine if you try it and it doesn't work. And she said, I'm going to teach this. And I was like, but could you please try? I'm going to teach this. I don't understand why we, and I'm just like, what am I going to say? She's a volunteer. But on the other, we had to we had to like wait until the semester ended and then like get rid of her. You fire a volunteer, you know. <laughs> um, and then I had another like, you know, the ones who were doing all the racist stuff were usually white women of a certain age. That doesn't mean that the men didn't have issues. They just did. They just had different issues. A lot of them among the volunteers. This is just my experience. And I'm not saying this generally, but a lot of the volunteers I met and a lot of the teachers I knew in South Korea, the people who did. Uh, like actively oppressive stuff were usually white women and the people who were just bad at teaching were men. So, <laughs> and now of course, I have also said that being oppressive is bad teaching. But what I'm saying is like genuinely like microaggression stuff was that. Now I'm just stereotyping, but my point isn't, that, that was my experience. And uh, it's, it's sort of interesting to see how the field, you know, even now when I say this stuff, the people who argue with me, the men don't tend to argue with me. They, the ones who don't like me, they just ignore me. Um, and I always wonder what the, what, why, why that is. And I don't have an answer for it. I mean, I know most of the people in the field are women, but yeah, I don't have an answer for it. But I also know, like I said, the people who've been the most supportive because the people I interviewed in the spring for my research, they were both women. I did not seek out women. I said, I just need white ELT professionals and they were women. So um, I don't know the answer to that question. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe there's something about me that get, no, uh, I mean, gets <laughs> attracts uh, I mean, <laughs> and uh, repels. I mean, I, I think the answer to your question, I think, is, is, is a lot scarier than, than, uh, than it seems. Because so for a lot of white people, we're, we're, you know, when, when we're undergoing a process uh, of, of confronting you know, the reality of white supremacy, when, when we're having these discourses or engaging in conversations, a lot of times we don't want to say, and I'm saying we because I include myself in this conversation because I am white. We don't want to say what we're really thinking because we know that if we say what we're really thinking, then there is a social cost to that because white supremacist ideologies are ubiquitous. These notions of, of, of just the, the, the natural... Uh, supremacy of, of, of white people have, have been embedded in us, have been fossilized inside of us. And so oftentimes we even know that, that we're thinking these things, but because, you know, we, we understand that there's, there's consequences to saying them, that engaging in these conversations and having these ideologies directly challenged makes us white folks just afraid of, afraid of having these conversations. And it's truly unfortunate. I think that there is a very, I have a very cynical thought about why my, you know, support has come from a certain demographic lately. Uh, and I think it's because, as you're saying, a social cost. They could have been saying this stuff forever. These are people who are in the field, sure, right? Sure. They could have been doing this. I'm not saying that they could have necessarily written that article because it's my article, whatever, but I'm saying like they could have been making these points. Yeah. Could have been doing it. And on the other hand, I'm still, and let's be clear, a man mm -hmm. who grew up in these institutions, 
who went to elite schools, who writes a certain way, uses a certain language, and again, a man. So like they're not spending all their time trying to prop up women of color who are making these points. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. They're, they did not read, I'm sure there, there's articles I've cited, one by uh, Kenesha Charles talking about black ELT professionals in South Korea, right? Uh, they're, they didn't, they're not reaching out to her necessarily. I'm sure some are, but they're not necessarily reaching out to her to, to put them forth and have them make presentations. I'm just biting the hand that's beating me now, but whatever. Um, and, the, and I think that like I am, and, but I'm also black. So it means that it's authentic coming from me. And it, I, I do mean what I say. So it is authentic. But I do think that like, there's a subconscious calculation going on that I, that to them, I'm the right person to put forth to make these points. Um, and I have the right image to make these points and the right language in both English, but in the words that I use. And uh, so sometimes I think about that and I wonder, you know, why don't you just do it? But on the other hand, I would like people to listen to what I have to say. So here I am. <laughs> That goes along with, you know, Vijay's uh, notion of aesthetic labor. Right. Is his research. Yeah, exactly. Right. I feel like there is some interesting aesthetic labor being pushed onto me, um, but I am being compensated for the labor, unlike the people he's talking about in his articles. So I don't necessarily, aesthetic labor is only a problem when it's exploitative. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, but it's, it's funny too, like even with aesthetic labor, like sometimes certain racialized aesthetics are deemed valuable in, in certain contexts, right? So maybe, well, I'm no, Justin is an amazing scholar, but maybe they're saying, oh, well, maybe we have this black guy to be um, the sort of our, our speaker, because then it's going to show like we're, we're being inclusive or we're being anti-racist and stuff like that. Um, so I think also like in terms of our own racial embodiment, sometimes we we sort of, it's kind of like, I don't know what's the right term, not like manipulated, but like we're sort of, they're getting something from us other, other than our ideas too. They're getting sort of like the sort of racialized body sort of justifying whatever their organization or whatever it is. Um, yeah. No, but then once again, I don't want to dismiss Justin because he's amazing scholar and brilliant. What, but I'm mean, just saying just in terms of like how, like even with me too, like when I, when I'm, when I get invited to do talks, it's like, is it just because they think I have an accent and they think, oh, okay, oh, he's gonna, he's gonna say the, the stuff about accent that's, um, that makes us feel better about ourselves. But I mean, I, I also think that we, we're now, what, so I think I was, I get, I've been invited on some of my podcast stuff like that, aside from having my own. And, you know, I talk or I got invited on those, like, I got invited on the, like, the news and I'm giving quotes. I don't really prepare before I go on there. Like, I know whatever happens, like that news clip that I was in, I'm in there for like 15 seconds. I can prepare for 10 years, no matter what, it's not, it's going to be one second. So I don't prepare. And I don't mean this to be dismissive of it. I just know, I said to myself, wait a second now. I could over prepare for this and it will come out exactly the same way or I could just react 
and trust the, you know, work I've done. Like trust the work. It's what they tell you about writing marathons. You trust the work you put in. The marathon is supposed mm -hmm. to be the easy part. But, but what I counseled myself on, I'd tell you to have the confidence of a mediocre white man, like these people on like <laughs> news programs, like they don't know anything. They don't know anything. They know nothing. They're just up there talking, right? And, and let's be clear, being up there talking is a skill. Like that is a skill. It's not the same skill as knowing stuff, but that is a skill. And like, I don't want to dismiss, like not anybody could be on, on TV talking. Like that is genuinely a skill set. Um, so I don't mean to dismiss like people who are on the news for that. Um, but they're not experts. I mean, some of the people brought in are experts. They bring in academics, but you know, I'm not saying only academics are experts, but the point is they bring in experts sometimes. Um, and I realized like, like when I give my talks, I prepare, but I don't over-prepare because if I over-prepare, it's going to come off stiff. And so my point with all this is that, you know, uh, sometimes I think that us having this discussion and BJ and, and, and I thinking like, why did they really invite me? That's just the impact of the racism in general because Absolutely. because you know white folks and it's not just white folks i mean you know but depending on the circumstances for what we're talking about white folks are not asking themselves this question never <laughs> it's never. never it's never it's never why am i here <laughs> if it does it's extremely rare right you know and i can see like this is the case for women sometimes but like depending on on the situation like you know they're not because that that's that's a a, a level of, of effort and labor that um, we have to engage in. We have to say, why do they want me? Okay, they want me because of this. Okay, they want me because of that. Okay, and it's just stress that we bring upon ourselves, and we blame ourselves. But it's really because they created a system where they believe that we are less, and they put that belief about us into the system, and. In fact, as Mike Mena was saying in one of his videos, like we'll say, well, it's imposter syndrome. It's like, it's racism though. Yeah. <laughs> like they've told us that we have a flaw in believing we don't belong. It's like, no, 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 we don't belong. Like the way the system is constructed is for us not to belong. Um, and that's one of the reasons, segue, that it's important to decenter whiteness because we can't belong, we can't be included, we can't be equitable, whatever thing you want to use. Um, some of these acronyms now. Now I saw guide, G-U-I-D-E, for genuine, like understanding, um, identity, diversity. <laughs> I saw Jedi um, for justice, equity. I can't with these people. Um, but, you know, it's the way it's built is for us not to be long. And unless we decenter whiteness in ELT, we will not 
belong. I'm going to keep, like people keep inviting me to do things and I do not glad hand. It's very easy for me to do that for my computer. I'm not sure how easy it would be to do if I was brought to an actual auditorium to talk to people and be like, this whole thing is bullshit. <laughs> because, because I actually travel to a place and I have to like thank them. I thank everyone for inviting me to give a talk. Like I don't really do that when I'm sitting at my computer because I didn't go anywhere. <laughs> like you didn't really invite me anywhere. You invited me to turn on my computer. But, um, but, but for now, I, I'm trying to build a name for myself um, where they know if they bring me on, I am not going to, to kiss up to them. But I also know it's easier for me because of my class, gender, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm going to use that relatively you know, positive position on everything aside from my race and however you want to define my neurodivergence to speak truth to the power. I know I'm closer to the power, so I'm going to grab a hold of it as much as I can and make sure that it listens. Um, so folks, uh, thanks for, for coming on to sort of work through some of these topics. I hope that people listening got an idea of some of the things that, that, that might be possible in ELT after whiteness. If each of you wants to give just sort of a last idea about what an ELT after whiteness classroom might look like. You know, uh, Scott, you have a, a you know, what a, what a classroom after whiteness and ELT might look like? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a classroom where the, the students are accepted regardless of, um, you know, what, regardless of what they may, the value that the system get, puts upon what they bring. It's a, it's a value where we understand that the system is unequal and that we don't, uh, we don't maintain the hierarchies, we don't reproduce the hierarchies, and we actively challenge the hierarchies that impose, uh, uh, these, you know, lack, impose a lack of value on what the students bring. Because they, they, all, they all bring something valuable. And I, I think in post-whiteness ELT, and, and the teachers as well, all the teachers, they bring something valuable regardless of, of, of where they're from, their background, or or any uh, element of their identity. All right, and Vijay, you have a, an idea what uh, an ELT classroom after whiteness might look like? Yeah, I think, um, well, I think the point is that we all, teachers and students always have to be pushing back against whiteness, right? So uh, yeah, just reiterating uh, Scott's point about just like actively challenging ideologies, whether they concern language, race, um, gender, etc. Um, I think it's it's also about like not being afraid to actually talk explicitly about these things as well. So I think even like it has to be something that's infused in, in the actual teaching and learning um, in the in the you know, um, English language classroom. I think it's something that's that's explicit and it's it's active. It's it's something that's that's an ongoing project, right? It, it doesn't end necessarily well i mean that's the thing right you say we have to always be pushing back against whiteness because it's centered to me that's kind of the answer right when we don't have to push back against anything is when it has been decentered mm -hmm. when that when that tension is no longer there mm -hmm. because when you go in the elt classroom i know i haven't literally been in one in a couple of years but i was in there for a while and like you're always having I mean, if you're paying attention, and a lot of teachers are not, but if you listen to this podcast and you're not paying attention, I don't know what you're doing. 
Um, geez, I don't know why you're wasting your time telling me that you're bad. I mean, you know, that's all I'm telling you is that you're doing it wrong. But anyway, um, <laughs> the, the tension that you have to notice in the language and in the pedagogy and in, in, in the, the training and everything about the field, you know, in the journals that still spend all of their time talking about, well, how can we get these people to improve their English skills, right? Um, to the point where when I got that article published, there's only been like one or two about whiteness and language teaching before that. Not because I'm so amazing, because nobody did it. Why? <laughs> I mean, I know why. But, you know, I mean, to me, whiteness is like the, I've used this before, but it's like the, it's like a, a, a bad air. It's there. And you've been living in it for so long that you don't realize that you're breathing it in. Um, but every so often, there's a gust of wind and you remember that it's there. Unless you are minoritized, in which case, you know it's killing you. So, folks, thanks for joining me. Um, uh, this will be up, you know, five or six weeks from now. Um, and it's going to be an interesting conversation, and I hope people enjoy listening to it. And I hope that the various middle-aged white women who've been supporting me are not offended that I mentioned that they are middle-aged. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. All right, folks.